Hello and welcome to episode 202 of What Most People Think and I am Jeff Norcott and that's the weirdest way I've ever started the podcast. I've never done that in what, 202 episodes because you just said 202, Jeff. God, this is going to be an interesting one, isn't it? I am fresh from an online controversy, everybody. I, on Sunday, I was out having a few uh, beers with a missus, 19 years married, by the way, um, the anniversary of that. Very proud of that. I mean, has there ever been a longer record of somebody punching above his weight? Still punching, still punching after all these years. And I was out with the missus and it was a Sunday and it was hot and I thought, I don't want to get like super smashed. So I had a pint of Foster's and I was on my third one. And that kind of contradicts the super smash thing. And it just looked great in the sunshine. So I took a photo and I shared it uh, on Twitter uh, probably the worst place to share. Just said, you know, is it time for a reappraisal of Foster's? And it turns out, um, no, apparently to most people. I genuinely got people unfollow me. There was angry abuse. There were people that just felt that they they didn't really know me anymore, who I was or what I'd become or that I was... Some people thought it was a character. As usual, everything I do is a fucking character, apparently. And um, people were getting genuinely furious. But I, I suppose it proves the Adrian Charles principle is that people really do care about the small stuff. You can, you can talk about trans ideology or Brexit or the Northern Ireland, the Belfast framework. I fucking forgot what it is. The winds of framework. This is a very well-informed political podcast, by the way, but I'll tell you something, you want to start a fight about anything. Just, just, just talk about your favorite lager. There should be, this probably should be a podcast in itself. A little fact, um, if you are part of the liberal metropolitan elite, one of the delusions that your misapprehensions even, that you'll labour under is that I'll say to you, well, you know, what's the best selling lager in the UK? And you'll probably instinctively think something like neck oil, right? Or you'll think Moretti, Peroni, or Brastard Brewdog, or, you know, punky fuckface. But do you want to know what it is? Have I mentioned this before? Still Carlin. Still Carlin, after all these years. Anyway, this is what most people think. The, the podcast that comes slightly from the right of centre, but has its finger on the pulse of the masses. And we are exercised about politics, but we are also exercised about lager. And speaking as somebody who's got her finger on the pulse is Michelle Deswart, our guest this week. A brilliant stand-up comedian, a fellow South Londoner. Uh, I've, I've in, incidentally appeared on... A lot of TV shows with Michelle, uh, The Duchess, which we'll talk about, Backstage with Catherine Ryan, and Live at the Apollo. I mean, two of those shows were to do with Catherine Ryan. So if you <laughs> if you want to talk about who is my patriarch in comedy, who is my page, who's my super patron, it's uh, both David Domain and Catherine Ryan. But the chat with Michelle, she's just such a naturally funny person and got such an interesting story to tell. You know, she worked, went out very, very young as a model. Uh, out to work in New York and, you know, was a high-level model out there for many, many years, did a lot of big campaigns, but was also learning how to be a stand-up and has come back here and is doing great things in the stand-up world. You know, she had a sitcom commissioned, which I don't think we got around to talking about. Such was the interesting chat that we had about other things. We were talking about, um, we were talking about hotels and look, just a hunch that out of our chat, one of the big takeaways you'll have is the idea of tears and what's it dust. Okay, so let's just leave that there and see if my hunch is right. Uh, Patreons, this week, for the first time in a long time, there were no new Patreons. So I guess I should remind people uh, of the benefits is that you will. Well, first up, right, is you'll be able to watch my last free stand-up comedy specials. And uh, and I didn't, I didn't realise that a lot of people don't know how to access these. So once you've joined, whether that be £3, £5, £10, or if you want to independently go to board member level and get your own signed copy of my book, sent out to you, you can do that, but you'll all be able to watch um, my last three specials. And you just go to the landing page, you, there's a little thing that says media type, you just go video, and then that it should come up, you'll have a list of all the videos and you can watch them from there. 
And for my VIP patrons, I'm, if I can offer just a little something here and there, I will. And friend of the show, Matt Marnie, the geezer guru, he is uh, doing an online meditation course. And I know that we've spoken about that several times when Matt's been on the show. And I will be going on Patreon and offering one free slot for that, which is worth 50 quid. But you can go and do an online meditation course and see if that is for you. So if you're interested in that generally, uh, find Matt Marnie on uh, um, Facebook. You can find him uh, on Instagram. Just put in Matt. Well, you've got Matt Marnie. It's a name that rolls off the tongue. And I, he's, you know, he's his last course sold out and it's well worth. If you're just thinking about how the fuck could I feel a bit calmer you know, and how could I just have an introduction just to see if that kind of thing works for you, then you could do a lot worse than do a course with Matt. Um, Domain Talking Point, our super patron, David Domain, who picks up with things from the last show, he is, uh, he's picking up on something that was said with David Baddiel about, I think it was an anecdote about how Stephen Merchant had said that basically shitting was a different proposition (laughs) as a taller man, because it builds up a bit of momentum and it comes out with a bit more force. So David Domain says, um, I can't find out anything about a person's height and defecation. However, a famous gastroenterologist at Georgetown Hospital, uh, Robin Chutkan, uh, knows that there are differences between men and women when it comes to number twos. Women's wider pelvises and the extra internal organs, such as the uterus and ovaries, means they're oh, Okay, I'm going to phrase this. It means that there are differences um, and longer by around 10 centimetres. Um, they're, they're colon. I had to say colon. Okay. Their colons are longer by about 10 centimeters. Men also have a more rigid abdominal walls that help push food through. I really regret talking about this subject now. Not your fault, David. It's, it's mine for taking it to that place. Um, so it is, and this is the surprising thing. And this is why I'm reading this out is that men are generally much more regular than women. Food takes longer to transit through most women, which is making them more prone to bloating. I mean, that's why that's why they're having a salad. It's not to impress you on a first date. It's just that, you know, they need to know that it will, uh, it will have a safe passage. So just to do a quick thank you and a fuck you. The thank you this week, and this is what's known in comedy as the double down, is to Foster's, the Amber Nectar, the greatest lager ever, <laughs> ever designed. I'm going to tell you, Foster's, it doesn't taste that bad. It tastes... I'm going to say hoppier than you would remember, okay? It got called piss water and all that kind of stuff as everyone got into their craft beers with notes of fucking toffee and cinnamon. But Foster's, it's just there to be drunk. It wants to be drunk, all right? You're telling me your craft lager that fucking, I don't know, tastes of saffron, right? No, Jeff, no craft lager. Doesn't matter. you telling me that. You're not going to be... No one has ever got onto like a fourth pint of one of those lagers. But Foster's... I was, I was I, well, I'm not going to admit that I hit double figures, but I, I may, I, I put in a good shift at the crease. I maybe didn't, I maybe I didn't salute the Barmy Army, but just Foster's, the Amber Nectar. Could they even sue me for me advertising their product without, am I, is that a copyright issue? Uh, or they could just send me some Foster's. Um, the fuck you is something weird is happening on the centre left of politics. These people that have basically said that they want the Tories out, right? They're not alone in that. Um, that they want Labour to be in power, okay. But there's something, the closer that they get to power, it's more, they seem to be becoming more angry and it's they're becoming more like what they claim to hate. So I'll give you an example, like fake news. For a long time and through Brexit and Trump, a lot of people on the centre-left were talking about what a poison and a cancer fake news was. And yet I've seen some fairly senior politicians deal in some fairly untrue shit like you know this idea that britain lost four percent of its gdp within a year within a single year i mean who was it It was uh i mean actually the guy that helped spread that around was a tory but people like alistair campbell and they're quite happy to allow that misconception to sit you know people a lot of people on the center left have also colluded with the idea that britain has the highest energy costs in the world you know there's been quite a lot of bits of fake news and i guess Mate, I was trying to work out why they're so angry, because they're closer than ever to the thing that they want, which is get the toys out, get a Labour government. But maybe there's a certain pressure that goes with that, right? Because if we think about the whole history of social media and political discourse, almost that has evolved and happened while there's been a Tory government, right? So for that entirety, 
people on the centre left who haven't had the, the outcome that they wanted in an election mostly since 20, 2005, right? That's a long, long time ago. Getting on for two decades ago. You know, Sadiq won the mayorship twice, yes. And not all centre-left people would have voted Remain, but I'd imagine most. So what they've had is a long period of, of hypothetical political and moral certainty, right? It's almost like a sliding doors where every single time they just happen to pick a, a storyline where everything was fucking fine forever. <laughs> and maybe, I don't know, maybe as they're realising with some of the inverted commas difficult choices that Starmer's going to have to take, that, that it's not going to be like a complete panacea. I don't really know what that word means. I think it's not the... That's a, there's a dirt, No, dessert, isn't it? Panacotta. It's not going to be a panacotta. And <laughs> we now have, you know, lots of big social media accounts that have amassed several hundred thousand followers from just getting up and going, fuck the Tories, yeah, I say it every day. Oh, and by the way, still fuck the Tories. And they'll amass like thousands of likes and retweets. I wonder... I just wonder if they're they're scared of their own irrelevance, right? Because what that's their brand. I mean, look at Carol Vorderman, you know, she was the maths she was the maths person on Countdown. And now the only maths she's doing is how many likes did I get from restating the exact same sentiment about the Tories 15 times in a row. But yeah, you know, and there are she's not the only account like that. And I guess the point that they would make, or what they'll say is, well, you know, when Labour get in, we'll, we'll hold Labour's feet to the flames just as much. You think, no, you fucking won't, right? You'll probably, uh, you'll probably do the odd tweet, but really it will become like it was when new Labour were in power before, was that things, you know, certainly in the kind of liberal heartland, things became a bit apolitical because you can't summon up the same anger about political incompetence or poor conduct when the party you like are in charge, right? So I'm sort of coming round to the idea of a Labour government, but just because I want to see what fucking happens. I want to see what happens with these accounts. Are they just going to start, are they going to go back to posting photos of their lunch or are they going to stay angry with the Tories? They might do, I suppose. The Tories kept talking about the effects of the credit crunch and the fact, you know, what happened, what, you know, how over leverage Britain was going into the credit crunch. So maybe they'll just carry on being angry about the Tories. But, you know, what is going to happen very soon is that that taking the piss out of the Tories could technically be seen as punching down. <laughs> I can't wait for that. And you know, all those people that said, well, you cannot have a conservative comedian on a panel show because all they'll do is go on and high five the government. And we all knew that that's not what any comedian would do. And then when Labour get in, I'll just be writing articles going, look, you just can't have. And I go, Jeff, is this just because you want more telework? I'll be like, no, you cannot have. Yeah, it is a bit, actually. OK, let's get in the chat with the brilliant Michelle Deswart. OK, uh, I'm very happy and welcome to What Most People Think. A uh, lady that I've done quite a few shows with. It's Michelle Deswart. Hi, Jeff. Hi. I mean, I say done a few shows with. I mean, more like we've appeared on shows. It, we haven't had a chat show together or anything like that. No, the know. first time I met you, though, we were waiting on set for Catherine Ryan's The Duchess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you had an actual role in that. I had uh, a role, which is the character of Brian, who the main thing about him was that he never spoke. Yeah, yeah. And he looked like a ham sandwich. Um, there was um, there was other shows we've done together. We did backstage with Catherine Ryan back in the um, well, that was filmed in the summer of 2021 in the post lockdown phase, and then it didn't come out to the following June. But um, but you 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 were great on that. I mean, it is a shame that that show's not going again. I mean, I, I, certainly I feel like it is. It is right. Yeah, it was fun, man. I really enjoyed it. Actually, I was on the ep with um, Rob Beckett. Tom Allen and Sue Perkins, who I was saying to her, because I was in the middle of filming the baby when um when we recorded that. So I hadn't done stand-up for like a month because of COVID. Like they wouldn't let you, you know, be in big mm. rooms if you're still on a film set, whatever. So I was saying to Sue, oh my God, I haven't done, you know, I haven't gigged for a month. I feel really rusty. And she was like, I've done two gigs in 15 years. I was like, oh. <laughs> and then she smashed it. She did. She did smash it. I mean, the the gigs went well. It was an interesting show in terms of when it went out, when you spoke to people, because a lot of people would have seen stand up in that way, a kind of live at the Apollo type staging of stand up, like high production values. But a lot of people are saying, well, 
I could have taken more of the backstage stuff. But I guess without the gig, the backstage stuff wouldn't have had context, right? Yeah, and also I feel like because it was recorded in sort of in the middle of lockdowns, everyone was very, as far as being on set, everyone was mm. very COVID conscious. Yeah. And I think that that made it like, it was a little bit more tricky production wise. Well, yeah, I mean, they had to, they had to, they were testing the audience. Did you know that? That the audience had to do two tests before they could come and watch it. I'm amazed anyone fucking turned up given that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like we say in comedy, ah, oh, you know, like if the, if the ceilings are too high and the room's too bright, imagine having to COVID test everyone twice before they even sit down. Like what a vibe killer. Well, yeah. And if anything, I mean, the expectations that I would have as an audience member, if I'd have had to stick something up my fucking nose and put it in the post <laughs> as a means of entry. I mean, speaking <laughs> about um, image, one of the things like, and, and this is a routine probably other people have discussed with you is that, is that there's you're a brilliant stand up and there's this routine that you do about, you know, when you, when you're a model and you would get kind of escorted into the club, you'd walk down the queue past all the ugly people and it blew me away when I saw that routine because I thought essentially what you did there was something I thought was impossible was to refer to something about your own appearance in a positive way and still get a laugh. Now, at the end of the routine, you do undercut it, right? But um, how long does it take to get a routine like that right where you realise that you could, the audience could, if they wanted to, take against you? That's You know what? That's an interesting question. I think I that was... I started stand up in New York mm -hmm. and I think that that really lent itself to that sort of like persona on stage. Do you know what I mean? Of just yeah. kind of like leaning into shit rather than being like, oh, I'm really going to be self-deprecating in a very British way. And mm. also you see like a lot of female comics, especially doing that. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm just going to put myself down. Yeah. And so I'll just sort of thought, I'll just go the other way. Just be like, I'm the shit. But say it in a way that, you know, <laughs> that clearly th there's a certain amount of things you have to do beforehand. Do you know what I mean? You've got to like, yeah. you've got to get everyone on side beforehand. You've got to take the piss out of yourself enough that when you do that they understand that there's irony you know you can't just although I have done at times but you definitely got to do it with a smile on your face you know like I'd, I'd also say like you know I lived in New York for years and I lived out there because I'm better than you lot <laughs> <laughs> but but isn't that where stand-up is best in a way is like you get to say the things that people can't generally say right so if I'm looking at you on stage and you're talking about your life as a model and it should be said in the case of that routine you're talking about it retrospectively so you're not saying like the joke is that this is what I used to be able to get as a consequence of my looks is that you just get to say that thing you know and I guess when someone tells me they've lived and worked in New York a part of me does think well that's that's probably a bit better than what I've done. So you getting to acknowledge it, it makes us laugh because you're telling a bit of the truth. Yeah, I think as well, I this stuff didn't land when I was younger. I started stand up at 30 and I was still modelling at 30. And hmm. even trying at times to sort of dip into that sort of persona on stage didn't land. It did sometimes, but it just, it kind of put a wedge between me and the audience. Whereas once I hit 40, and like you said, I was talking about it past tense, fine. Do you, I mean, I think when I think about like good looks, it, it is under discussed. And, and this is like in a general sense of, of the power that good looks have. It's, it's kind of obvious we can see all the benefits it gets. But when we talk about, you know, privilege and the things that make life easier, I mean, you once said that it was like having a trust fund, which I think was like a brilliant way to describe, you know, what looks can do for people. But there are objective studies that like you're more likely to get less likely to get found guilty of a crime if you're good looking. Right. And if you if you are what is conventionally seen as, as ugly, again, this is a politically difficult word to use. Not only are you more likely to get found guilty, you'll get a longer sentence, which does make me laugh because it's so fucking brutal but you know you can see in the trials of ted bundy for example is because like, he was a charming good-looking fella the judge is basically trying to be his mate it's a it's a strange phenomenon isn't it that we don't really d acknowledge yeah i mean it's the same with like politicians and prime ministers and presidents do you know what i mean like the, the, the better looking they are the more chance they've got of winning and um i think i guess it's not discussed as much because 
the person who's probably reaping the reward or the, the person who's in that point of privilege doesn't want to talk about it because they don't want to do anything more to put distance between you and the person you're chatting to about it or you've got to seem like humble or you can't really I guess it's the same thing that we're talking about in terms of stand-up like it's easier to talk about now I'm older you know um and, and maybe I'm just maybe I'm more confident talking about it I don't know but yeah of course man yeah there's 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 blatant privilege blatant privilege would you I mean you mentioned like presidents I wonder if in your mind was like you know Bill Clinton a big part of the Bill Clinton thing was that he looked like Bill Clinton uh, he played the saxophone. I mean, that is Tony Blair as well. At the same time, you had these two guys that were... I mean, Tony Blair wasn't as good looking as... I mean, who are we rating higher, Bill Clinton or Tony Blair? I mean, it's hard to, to take all the Blair stuff out of it, what we know about him in Iraq. But just just if we're doing points out of 10... I mean, listen, the same the same with Bill Clinton, really. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, um, But who, who, who better? I mean, fucking hell, it's like saying Boris or Trump, innit? <laughs> They're both bloody awful. But you know, if I if I had a session like you, 10 pints in, maybe, maybe I could pick. Um, but I, I guess it's like why people are still um really kind of starry-eyed about JFK. Mm, it's like yeah, yeah. all the things that he could have been, but also good looking guy. It's mad, isn't it? How much these basics like matter to the. Well, it's not mad in a way because in our lives, looks matter. Like if if a if a fella has a beautiful wife and two beautiful kids, we do sort of like that guy more. And I know like it's impossible to justify on a moral basis, but it does. It's not a surprise, is it, that in life, if you meet someone with a beautiful family, that in politics that would matter too, which does again beg the question of Boris and Trump to an extent because, you know. Um, Look, man, it's, it, we're like that with everything, just as humans. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, when, when you go into prep, what sandwich you picking? You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like, when you go into a shop, well, like, what, what bit of fruit are you picking? We are drawn to things that look aesthetically pleasing. Now, what you hope is that the more, um, the more time you've had on the planet, the less those things matter because you realise that it doesn't bring you happiness it's not necessarily going to be the best tasting sandwich or the best bit of fruit um you know or the person who's really good looking is not necessarily going to give you the best hour of conversation but you need to amass data to mm. do that right so when you're young and you're first on the planet I think you're gonna go you're gonna be drawn towards the things that look good yeah, I mean, as you say that the falafel, spinach, and beetroot wrap at Pret, it doesn't, it doesn't look great. It doesn't look like fun. And May, do you know what? As well, like I really feel like Pret are taking the actual piss lately because I, I get it. Like, yes, yes, yes. There's the, the the economy's gone to shit, but like, come on, Pret, man. How many times do you open up a Pret sandwich like over the last six months and just go, yeah. you lot are taking the actual mick. Have you oh, seen I the lie on prep for every single bite to be the same as the first? That's I mean that yeah, prep used to be there's definitely shrinkflation, right? Which is them thinking a lot of companies kind of go, well, rather than put up our prices, we'll reduce the size of the project product or the quality. I think Pret have done both. I think they've reduced the size of the product <laughs> and the quality. I bought something from Pret the other day and it was literally a sandwich and an apple juice and it was eight quid. I'm not, I'm sorry, like nothing has gone up by that much. That is that is bollocks. Chris, in Pret, I think it's like two pounds. You're like, what? Well, what? I mean, thank God for Greg's right. So I was at I was at Saint uh, Saint Pancras the other day, and I just went to get something from Pret, and I thought, no, fuck this, this is just habit. I went across yeah. to to Greg's, and it was like bacon roll and a tea, and it was like three quid. Uh, do you know what though? I mean, if you're doing that at Saint Pancras, you better not be doing that before a long train journey. You got to mm. be doing that after you got off the train. Do you know what I'm saying? Because a bacon butty from Greg's, oof. What, you mean they'll be smelling in the carriage? No, I just mean like, I don't know about your stomach with that. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not I'm not that old. I'm like 46. I can deal with, I can deal with a bacon roll. If, if it had sriracha sauce on it, then we might be, <laughs> it, it might need a little uh, Gaviscon chaser perhaps. Like in comedy, it's such a broad thing where you get people coming from all sorts of backgrounds that, that have done it. And, you know, quite commonly, there's a lot of teachers that have done it. You know, I taught, there's just loads of examples of teachers. I have to say, like, teacher? yeah, yeah. I, can you guess what subjects? It's always uh, interesting. Geography. 
Well, why do you have to say that? I mean, that... Why, You're just that giving I'm, them vibes. But that's worse. Now, you've said that geography... I give off the vibes of a geography teacher. Obviously, English, the cool one, you know. Oh, really? I mean, yeah. Why is that... Oh. <laughs> I mean, you could have said maths, I suppose. PE is the that, other one. That was going to be my second guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, PE is <laughs> PE is a way, like, when I ask the audiences, that's a way of them sort of, sort of like it's a class-based insult where they go, we don't think you're that bright, so we're going to say PE, even though... And I would say that I don't look in shape enough to do PE, but I, I don't know if you've seen PE teachers. They don't... Yeah, they never do. They don't really walk the walk, do they? No, 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 no. That's what the whistle's there for. <laughs> they don't... Well, they do walk the walk. That's a problem. They should be running the walk. <laughs> um, but, you know, I never really come across anyone that, that's modelled. Are you aware of anybody in the industry? Any other fellow yeah, ex-models? I think Ellie Taylor. Ellie would did, be one, yeah. yeah. And, and, I mean, it is quite a rare thing. And I suppose what I found interesting is, the more, I, the more I thought about it, is there a Venn diagram between the two things? Now, instinctively, you wouldn't think that comedy and modelling have that kind of uh, overlap. But I guess when you were modelling, there was a part of your personality that you would have to inflate and make bigger to, to do good photo shoots or good catwalks. No, no, quite the opposite, man. It's that you had to make it smaller because um, uh, you were just trying to be a blank canvas and they're not asking you to interact. They don't really want to see your personality. The whole point is you're a blank oh. canvas and they paint whatever they want on top of you and then you sell the shit. Um yeah, so I, I, I so say take the personality that. out of your of of your face almost. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, wow. obviously you can smile and jump and laugh and look like you're having a good time at the fake dinner party, but like, <laughs> you know, nah. Well, what about then? Did you do much um, catwalk stuff, or was it yeah. was it mainly photo shoots? So is is that like um, is there a performance element to that? I mean, no, not, I mean, I guess in terms of like you're on stage, yeah, but I can't say that there's that many similar, I tell, actually, I'll tell you what one of the similarities are, is that like in, in modelling, you would model with people from all different backgrounds, right? Because mm. although it's based on looks, it really is only based on looks and it didn't really care about like gender, um, race, economic background, you know, if you were the look of the moment, you were the look of the moment. And so you've got the opportunity to work with people that you probably would never cross paths with. You know what I mean? Like I was mm -hmm. modeling with girls from all over the world that I've never have got to meet um, in any other walk of life. Likewise with comedy, you know, there's like, it's, it's like, a, yeah, you just meet people from all different backgrounds. But also in comedy, it's like different ages as well, which is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. M modeling, not not so good on the... Uh, they've got every other kind of diversity now, but no one, nobody under the age of 35. Mm, exactly. Do you, I mean, you know, like the catwalk strut thing, you, you know, like that, but we have to come out of confidence. In people's minds, the stereotypical thing is that everyone just bowls down the catwalk bold as yeah. brass you know it, yeah. is there any other like is there experimentation is in that are they all doing that walk or do some of them just come out a bit hunched just to play it a different way or is it all I mean, the same I, I was awful at it because you think that there's some sort of school like you think that there's someone mm. sort of teaches you how to do it and 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 you don't and like I don't know if you if you know this but when I was um when I was modeling like one of the like funniest things I ever did was I fell on a Gucci runway three times in one show. Just like, Amazing. I just, but I'd just gone from being a bartender. It's like, yeah, I didn't know how to walk. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, cause it's a pace of walking that's not natural. And of course you have to like give it some sass as well. So that, that's yeah. a lot. I mean, and, and also most people, if you just said to them, Right, you're going to do a thing now, and the thing that people are going to look at is the way you walk. We would all walk differently, under scrutiny. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. You, and, you... and there's just this vibe that it's like, once you're like a model, it's like, yeah, you're a model, and you, it, that means all of these things to someone. But like, for me, when I first started, I went to Milan, and I did all the shows in Milan, from like Versace to Dolce & Gabbana to Gucci, but literally a month before that, I was pulling pints in Clapham. So, like, where's the bit where you're now officially this thing? Yeah. You know what I mean? You're like, obviously you are, and all your mates are like, oh, yeah, you're a model, and you know that you are, but you're just like, I literally was pulling pints a bit up. Like, I, there's no training. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, like, I mean, it is incredible, because you went out there to New York, was it, like, 18, 19, sort of? Yeah, yeah, 19, uh, 20, actually, yeah. 20, but that's like, I mean, I get it's weird. I guess the older you get, the younger that must feel, because... 
you know, maybe when you were 25, you don't think that's that long ago. Now you think of a 20 year old just going out and yeah. starting, starting a new life. I mean, you must yeah. have like, it must have taken quite a bit of resilience. It did. Well, it did. But I was also just like, I knew it was a touch. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. I was definitely, I started, I started at 19 and I think, and then I lived in South Africa for about three or four months beforehand. And I just, I just was like, I, I remember thinking I would, this was a really old age to start modeling that. Cause most models start at like, I don't know, 12, 13, 14. And, um, and I remember being like, fucking hell, I'm like proper old in the game. But uh, what, at 20? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was well, starting at 19. My agency would mm. just like not tell people how old you are. Do you know <laughs> oh, what I mean? Can you, can, you, can you hold it down, please? Can you keep it a secret? Um, but yeah, now when I look back, I'm like flipping out. But at the time, you think you're really mature, don't you? It doesn't matter yeah. how old you are, you think, because you're the oldest you've ever been. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's true. I mean, yeah, you're always the oldest you've ever been. You're always the oldest you've ever been. You've never been as old as you are right now. <laughs> Fucking hell. I mean, look, every once in a while on my podcast, I put in a little sting when someone says to something deeply philosophical, and I think that's one of those moments. So you're out there. I would say your stand-up style, you're so British in the way that you communicate and uh, on stage and the vocabulary that you use, but... It's hard to explain, but tonally, I see the American influences in there, like in the in, in the way that you approach it. I mean, what 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 are you, your sort of stand up influences? Because it's really hard to some people you can see a really easy through line of who they're influenced by, but you, it, it's harder to detect. Yeah, I guess I guess I guess the people that I came up with in New York, do you know what I mean? But I'd say my influences were like, I mean, I really loved like. Um, Chelsea Peretti and Natasha Lajaro and mm -hmm. Wanda Sykes and um, you know Bill Burr like um, I kind like I, I kind of love Joey Diaz just for his storytelling. You sort of you kept your accent. I, I mean, certainly here, a lot. It's quite easy when you go overseas at a young age to completely assimilate and lo lose your accent. Were you speaking more American when you was out there or, or, or is it something you sort of resolutely held on to? No. And actually, you know what? It's a bloody problem, Jeff, because I am 42 years old and I still sound like I'm 20 years old in the year 2000. And it actually pisses <laughs> me off. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I just I didn't think I'd still be talking like this at this age. Like it's just kind of stood in time because I didn't grow up with my peers with the same accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I still like I'm like I still say bruv. Like when I get nervous on stage, I'll be like in it bruv, in it bruv, and I'm like, are you all right, Mish? Like what? what? So it's it's a problem. It's a it's a, it's a problem. I did not lose my accent at all, one bit. Nor has it nor has it matured. Nor has it grown older with yeah, me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's just stood in time. So. Yeah. You know, like they say about like like alcoholics is one of the if you drink heavily for a long period, one of the difficult things about getting sober is that your emotional state is sort of frozen a bit um, at the age when you started drinking heavily. But you but you've had that with your voice. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And I don't know when I don't know when I thought it was going to happen. Like, why, why did I think that like, well, I was just going to wake up one day at 30 and yeah. not say brother in it? Well, you were just what, like more like you thought you'd have more RP, like received pronunciation or? No, not even that. Just not use so much slang. Like, mm. like, li like this, like, yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, do you know, like, I just, I don't know what. So no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't lose my accent at, at all. What, what I did was I said um, way more American words, obviously, because that's where I was mm. living. So even now I still say pants instead of trousers, trash instead of rubbish, you know, little things, but basically because I still, because I still got the same accent. Now I'm moved back out here and I say American words. I just sound like a dickhead. Like, it's not like I sound like, oh, because you lived out there. It's, I sound like somebody went on holiday for two weeks and has come back and want everyone to know. Well, see, that's what's interesting is that I, I have a real difficulty with people who have spent a, a short amount of time somewhere and come back with the accent because you sort of feel like, it's sort of affected, isn't it? Yeah, it, it makes me feel like I can't trust them. <laughs> hundred, yeah, to totally. I think I think you don't know yourself if you're that easily influenced. And and I, I have that with friends. Like my brother came to visit me um, a couple of years ago and I was living in LA and a friend, a mutual friend of um, uh, as 
she's lived out there the same t- amount of time as me and has a full American accent now. And my brother was like, oh, why is she talking like that? And I said, no, because she's lived out there for 20 years. It's weird that I don't sound like that, quite frankly. Yeah, 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 20 years. <laughs> At this years point, it's not suspect that she's got an American accent, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, because it, 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 you sort of feel like if you... My suspicions are is that they don't really know who, who they are or yeah, exactly. that, like... I mean, this is really taking it to an extreme, but if, if a totalitarian state took over, they'd be, like, cozying up to the, the fascists. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a very extreme thing. But, you know, like, in, in Second World War, you know the people in France, like Vichy French, that were straight away, like, right, who's in charge now? I just, I, I, I always would potentially... Because sometimes I get it right. I work in, like, you know, somebody heard me on the news quiz the other day and they were saying, oh, you you were geezering it up a bit. You were, you were, you know, that's not how you always sound. But I suppose if you're in a situation somewhere like Radio 4 where all of your environment is fairly middle class and receives pronunciation, you either assimilate or you double down a little bit. And maybe that's my... Down. You double... Yeah, yeah. And 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 maybe that's why... You, will you go all the way back to using, like, Budweiser catchphrases from 2002? <laughs> like... Giving it the what's-ups. <laughs> not, not, quite, not quite that deep. But I will say, I did get like a touch of the Dick Van Dyke vibes about my accent. Do you know what I mean? Like I remember coming back and my mate going, you're from South London, you sound like you're from East London. I was like, it's the fucking least of my problems, mate. But yes, you're right. I did get a bit like, <laughs> bit, 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 yeah, let me go and clean, clean these chimneys. Like I definitely, I think I... Think I I think I leaned into the identity of being a Londoner in mm. New York. I definitely was like, oh, I'm never going to say I'm a New Yorker. I'm a Londoner in New York. I'm working class. Not that anyone gives a shit about class, really, in that country. But mm. you know what I mean? I, I definitely um, lent into saying, like, this is who I am. Okay, I hope you're enjoying the chat with Michelle. Such a funny and fucking honest person, man. Um, The tour. So just to mention some dates that are coming up is in the autumn. I'm going to be in Belfast. I'm not going to do the accent because it's just been getting worse and worse, isn't it? Let me me just practice. I am going to be in Belfast, wee man. I am going to be there on uh, November the 24th. I'm going to be at the Lame Lake. The Lame Lake 2 and Belfast. You have to go so fucking over the top just to get the accent even kind of right. Um, and then the day before that, this was a good way around, do it, Jeff. Or is it the other way around? What a fucking disaster this is. Anyway, on the 23rd and 24th of November this year, I'm going to be in Del- Belfast and Dublin. I'm going to be in Belfast and Dublin. But I don't know which way around I'm going to fucking be doing it. So I might be in Belfast on the Thursday and then in Dublin on the Friday. Or I might be in Dublin on the Thursday and in Belfast on the Friday. But um, those dates, you could do with a little tickle there. I know that the um, the Dublin venue currently don't have my date on sale on their website, which probably isn't helping. But uh, yeah, it's at Liberty Hall in Dublin and then I'll be at the Limelight 2 in Belfast. So if you are... I mean, how do I say it in a way? If you, if you do live on the island of Ireland, how about that? They, yeah, no one can come with me for that. Do get tickets for that. All right, let's get back to the chat with Michelle Diswart. By the way, this is just a little insert additional edit. Having listened to it back, yes, I do, somewhat unbelievably, I do do an edit. Um, at about 55 minutes in, just after Michelle is talking about doing tour support with Catherine, uh, my mic failed. So if you suddenly hear my voice sound really different, don't worry, you're not having a stroke, unless you can smell burnt toast. I mean, is there any other symptoms of a stroke other than burnt toast? Write in, what monks people think UK at gmail.com. Anyway, let's get to the chat with Michelle. But I mean, I guess on the class thing, I, I've had this sort of renewed argument again with with uh, both my wife and, 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 you know, people and friends and people that we know, is that, this, people want to say to me now, well, you're completely middle class now because of the trappings of your life. It's an age old debate. And I get their point, right? Once you live in Cambridgeshire in a reasonable house and, you know, you've got the trappings of a middle class life. Problem for me was the bit of my life that was formative was when my parents moved to, well, my mum and dad got divorced. We moved to a council estate. And then, you know, and that was from the age of nine. And then we lived in a council house in Mitcham. I mean, you know, South London, right? I can see the yeah. empathy in your eyes when I mention Mitcham yeah. because it's kind of got all the bad South London stuff, but none of the good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, 
And so that's my argument is that, is that that's the bit that made me. So that's my default is, is that that's what I feel at my core. It doesn't really matter. Hey, I'm probably trying to justify myself, but I guess in your, in your formative bit, it sort of tipped over into being quite fancy, right? So you was out in well, New no, York. Because I was, I was 20. I'd done all my teens. I'd, right, you know, of course. I'd done, yeah. I'd, done all my, I'd done all my growing, you know, um, maybe not like the brain development hadn't finished yet, but there was only like five years to go. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I, 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 I guess that was the bigger part of my identity. And so that's what I wanted to cling on to. Do you know what I mean? That was a bigger anchor for me. Now at 42, mm. I've lived, you know, I've had a whole adult life that I can, you know, authenticate myself by. And it's not so stressful being like, who am I? It's like, it doesn't have to be a thing or a music or an accent or a genre or a, or a food or, you know, a TV show or, you know, this is what kind of music I'm into. Um, so now I can sort of be like, well, I'm all of these things. Like you live in a townhouse in Cambridgeshire, but you also grew up in Mitcham. For what I am so sorry, do you know what I'm saying? For you. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? So you're all of those things. And that's the well, same you know, now. Like I'm, I'm, I'm all of these things. But I think when you work, when you grow up working class, there's just certain things that you know. You're just aware that not everyone has money. You're aware of how much certain things cost. You don't want to like. I don't know. I just think you're more attuned to people's feelings in terms of whether they have or haven't. You wouldn't assume well, much. Well, one of the things you mentioned there is about, about certain things that you haven't had. And you've seen, as we're having this interview, I'm having a Diet Coke. And I've mentioned it several times, was that being able to just have Diet Coke cans in my fridge has been a, a luxury I've never got over. That is such a billy, big bollock move. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, listen, first of all, a bottle of Coke, that was actually the name brand, Coca-Cola, yeah. is a big fucking move. Having fizzy drink in your house is a big move. Having <laughs> squash in your house is a big move. Having sugar that you don't have to put in water and tell yourself that that is juice is a big move. You know what I mean? So, like, Coca-Cola... Once you're up to cans... <laughs> Cans. Can. I've just never got over it. And then you sort of scale that up. So I didn't go abroad till I was uh, 13 or 14, right? It's the first time I left the country. And so I, I, when I was an adult and I could book flights myself, and it still gives me a buzz, I can just go on and book a flight. When I was a kid, I used to feel like that was something that your doctor would have to like sign a thing to let you do. You know, mm -hmm. like with the passport, I just thought yeah. someone like me would need a responsible professional present for all of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like there's certain things I was saying to my friend the other day, I was like, you know, like things that you think were fancy when, when you were a kid that you know isn't now. Like I thought croutons were like <laughs> the you know, like the ceiling of be like I remember my first crouton. Like I, I just don't yeah. do you know what I mean? I'm just like you just don't you don't forget your first crouton. I remember when I first took like when I first started flying on my own and they'd bring you the the dinner, I thought I had to eat the salad first. Because that was the starter. Like any dumb thing. Shit, you're sitting on a plane. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I like I like yeah. it that you see croutons as the height of sophistication. I didn't have a, a, an olive. It does sound like we're the, you know the that famous Monty Python sketch of the old Yorkshiremen out, out yeah. competing each other for how yeah. hard their lives were. Yeah. Mine was that I didn't have an olive till I was uh, mid twenties. I just thought. I don't know if I'd have been ready for an olive though until then. If I'm honest, I, I didn't like olives until I was an adult because I feel like yeah it's a special kind of taste and it's like papers and you know in terms of yourself one of the things you've mentioned is like you're getting paid really good good money when you're out in the states when what was getting on the comedy circuit like back in the UK like for you because once you've had that life did you ever have I mean have you had to do the 150 quid Murph control gig in XA? it must yeah must think like fuck yeah. this like I have I, I, I've got to say um, I, I, you know what was weird about it is that I went from so when I started modeling I hadn't stayed in like hotels and stuff like that right so mm. I went from nothing to staying in five star hotels right like I went from pulling pints to like staying in the four seasons and when I made that swap from modeling to like doing Leicester Comedy Festival I remember <laughs> I remember them. Being, I remember going there with like Dan Schreiber and Tom Davis, and uh, they we were all staying in the same hotel, and they were like, "Ah, oh, this hotel room's amazing." And I remember walking around and just being like, "Oh 
my fucking God. Like I've never seen <laughs> shampoo and body wash in one container also <laughs> nailed to the wall like anyone was ever going to take it. I was like, this <laughs> is a shithole. And it was like a holiday in or whatever, but I was like, I had to hold it down because I'd never, I hadn't seen anything in the middle. I love, I love that because it's sort of like you've got a kind of non-binary class thing going on because on the one hand, you still probably think that croutons are fancy. Yeah. But... You also got like uh, you got this privileged view of hotels, whereas mine is mine's the other way around. Like I I can't sleep in nice hotels. I don't because there's something in me just going. You, you're not good. You're not. You shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be here. But stick me stick me in a travelodge, and bang. I mean, I sleep ridiculous in in a travelodge, and I think it can't be the beds aren't that nice, right? I don't know what it is psychologically that's doing that, but it's now happened far too long for it to be a coincidence. Well, it's, it's, it's a sense of self-worth, isn't it? It's, it's <laughs> exactly like you said, you're like, you don't feel like you should be there. Whereas when I'm staying in a shithole, I'm like, how has this happened? <laughs> <laughs> so go right, d- define shithole. Let's go through the spectrum of hotels. If we if we take it to Travelodge, we're going up Premier Inn, Holiday Inn. Where's the, where's the first point on the, on the kind of food chain of hotels I mean, where you're comfortable? Honest, like, I, I don't like... Now, because I've been touring and all this kind of stuff, and you know, I don't mind staying in a Holiday Inn. I just didn't know it really existed. You know what yeah, I'm yeah. saying? Like, yeah, but also I think Holiday Inn for me—that's that's in the upper premium range. You know? Oh no, 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 no. We're starting there. We're starting there. That is that's level one. What I like is like, um, you know, just like a big fancy, but very like I don't want a themed hotel. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like I'm not interested in that. I want nice white beds. I just I just want everything lovely, and I want the products that they give you in the room to be something that I would actually buy in the shops. That I mean that, but then again, I buy absolute shit in the shops. So when they That's go the, like with a, this is why this is why nice hotels are wasted on you. All right, it's you true. want fucking Greg's. You want to be in a Holiday Inn, <laughs> yeah, and you want to have some people banging in the room next door to you. That's what you want. Cool. Would that? I don't. Yeah, I can't relax until there's noise pollution. I mean, one one of the things that I've often thought about those hotels, and this is true of all hotels, that psychological thing. So you know, when you walk into a hotel room, and if it's clean and nice, the psychological way we're able to shut down the knowledge that there were people in that room until earlier that day, and a different group of people before. What the fuck is that? Because yeah. I can't conceive of it. That room was born no, when I opened the Jeff, door. You know what don't make sense, yeah? Is that you're saying mm. that, but you're more comfortable in a Holiday Inn, yeah, than you would be in the Four Seasons. Now, let's just, let's just yeah. think just bodily fluids, yeah? <laughs> what do you think has been more saturated in bodily Oh, what a fluids? word. What a word. Saturated. Well, I mean, um, you're right. Yeah, what kind of... De- oh, but then again, I, this goes back the other way, Michelle. If you're talking about depraved behaviours, well, we all okay, know... Okay. This is a fucking good point, because I'm thinking if it's a mm. if it's a four seasons, we're either going jizz or probably blood. <laughs> <laughs> it, that's what if I mean. Going, like you get... <laughs> if we're going holiday in, we're talking a lot of sick, a lot of jizz, a lot of piss, a lot of shit. Yeah. And then if you get down to Travelodge, we're talking tears, mainly. Tears, <laughs> mostly tears. <laughs> tears and fucking what's-it dust. <laughs> you know, once you're doing... I mean, I guess you've got a tour coming up. Is that right? I've just finished. I finished in March. They, well, I mean, tour's nice because you... Could, but the club stuff, once you've got telly stuff going on like you have, it, some of it is just for the love of doing it, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think my whole my whole career in New York, that's what it was, because I didn't make any money. You don't make any money as a comic in New York. See, this would interest people, but a lot of UK punters would just think that there was more money there, but the U- they've got less money on the circuit, haven't they? No money. Like, you would have to leave. I mean, you could, you could do some gigs, but you would have to, you would really have to, like, there's only a few places that are going to pay you. A decent amount of money. Do you know what I mean? Like that, like like the cellar stands, mm. maybe. Like you just because there's there's too many good comics coming through. You know what I mean? It's just like if you want to make money, you have to leave New York and like maybe go on like the college circuits or just go to like different cities. 
you know, go and do like a weekend at a, you know, a random city. But in New York, you don't make any money. My first, my first five years doing stand-up in New York, I didn't make a penny, maybe $20. And I was doing multiple shows in a night. Also, I was shit. But <laughs> I mean, that, that's a big problem with comedy, isn't it? Like what happens is, I find a lot of people in your first few gigs, you had one that went really well. Yeah. And then you have a really long time of being shit again. It's it's really harsh. It's really harsh. It's like someone that in, tried heroin once and he really enjoyed it, but then kept doing heroin, but didn't get off their tits from it, for a, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, stuck yeah, with yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, heroin, in that instance, heroin makes more sense than doing stand up. Because yeah. at least you get, re- <laughs> at you know, least you, you get returns. as well, right? Is that you don't realize? I think when you first start, like you've only got your last gig to go on. So if you, so you think you've had a really good gig. If you had that gig now, you'd be like, mm. oh my god, I really need to like think about my whole set and like what I'm doing. But like at the time, if if some people laugh, you think you've crushed it. You haven't. Well. You were still shit. But in your head, you're like, what am I got to go on the five gigs I've done? You know, mm. people laughed at that gig. So you're like, oh, I've fucking destroyed. But you didn't. Well, Michelle, you're always as you're always the most experienced that, that you've ever been. <laughs> just trying to quote <laughs> just trying to quote a Michelle Deswartism back at you. But it's true, it's true, isn't it? I mean, you could as long as you're still improving and 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 you know, as comics, generally if you keep going, some people sort of lose the creative love for it right and you can see that but yeah. but if each tour you're getting better then you, your best gig and then what will happen is what's strange is like your family and friends will come and see you do a gig which last time they saw you is way better than you were before but you think it was shit but that's only because you know you know what's possible whereas they're thinking when we saw him five years ago he was really bad at this you are so right i had so you know when we did um live at the apollo you did a bloody mm. great job hosting, by the way. You, Amazing. You smashed it. It was um, a great show. I mean, Sean McLaughlin as well. It was fucking everyone built right? it. Right. So I I felt like, so I had some friends, some old friends come with me, right? And one friend um, to come and watch. And one friend in particular, um, we used to model together. And she'd seen me do like a show that I was only a few years in stand up, maybe like I said, a year in. And I tanked at this gig so massively. But I didn't realise, I got off stage and I was like, oh, that didn't go well. Let's go, let's like stay for a drink. And she went, no, we have to leave. And I was like, no, we cannot stay here. We must leave. Anyway, so she had seen me do stand up until she came like live, until she came to live at the Apollo. And I had an all right gig at live at the Apollo. What you forget with live at the Apollo is your, your, your best gig, your best live gig doesn't get an edit like live at the Apollo gets. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I got off stage going, I, I wasn't I wasn't disappointed. I was like, it was good. It weren't as good as I think I can be, but it was good. But she was like, fucking hell, you destroyed. Because the last time she saw me, I for reasons I still don't understand, Jeff, I moonwalked off stage. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Make it well, make sense, you- mate. For your second live at the Apollo, I think that, that might, you might just have to reprise that. That you're right. That must be amazing for your friend if she's seen nothing in between. I mean, look, you, I, I totally understand if you felt that your live at the Apollo was just okay. I think it was a lot better than just okay. It was a great gig, but for your friend to see that fucking like, if it was a graph, she's gone like, what have you, what have you been doing um, in 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 the meantime i mean to, people are always interested with live at the apollo about the the nerves it, it was the second time I'd, I'd done it but the first time i was destroyed with nerves how, how did you cope on the day i felt really calm actually on the day and um uh, but but where it came out is uh just before the um just before the dry ice sort of happened and the and the screen went up i'd just in a nervous panic decided to tuck the front of my shirt into my trousers and I really feel like I look like a cracked out Humpty Dumpty for the whole thing so I think that's where it came out is I was like I feel fine before I went out though I I felt a bit of nerves and I just thought I've I've worked I've worked for this do you know what I mean I was like Mm. I've I've done all the gigs I've done the shit I've done multiple Edinburgh's free fringes flied for myself and really crappy venues you know I've I've cried I've laughed and this is it now I'm here and I just felt like I'd done the work so that kind of calmed me down 
as far as doing um as, as far as doing like live at the Apollo, I've, I've, I had I had the obvious nerves, but they didn't sort of get too carried away with me. And luckily, I'd just been supporting Catherine Ryan on tour. So as far as doing venues that size, I felt comfortable. Do you know what I mean? But it's just it is like it's a bit of an out of body experience. And I don't know if you had this, but because you've got that massive clock on stage, I in my head was thinking like doing a gig gig so I was like I've said 20 minutes it's got to be 20 minutes and I sort of burnt through it all a bit quicker than I normally do probably through nerves right and then I looked at the clock and I was like fucking hell it's 16 minutes and I'm basically I've only got a minute left so I, I did I sort of slowed down like Barack Obama in a speech so I sort of thought <laughs> oh yeah that'll do it I could have should have just got off but I just started talking really slowly yeah, that's a good way of just do the Barack Obama. Like, have you ever noticed when you go into the shop? Yeah, I was like, the thing about me is, you know what I mean, brav. Yeah. I mean, one thing I would say about Apollo that's good about it is that once you're out there, it does feel like a gig because I don't know where the fuck the cameras are, but yeah. it's not like they've got the overhead ones swinging down and some guy getting right up your nostrils. That yeah. would have probably freaked me out. Once you're out there, you're like, oh, right, right, this this is... Uh, yeah, I'm this doing is, it. Yeah, this is a gig. I don't know if you're aware, like at the end of the show that, that we did, um, I had to go on at the end and, and say, thanks very much, and you've got to close the show before the audience get up and start leaving. Um, about two minutes before the end of Sean McLaughlin, I somehow threw like a whole glass of water over my top and... Apparently, if the compet doesn't get straight out, it really fucks the recording um, because the punters start leaving. It looks really bad, and obviously they've got to get the hydraulics on that sign that comes down. So from having one of the best gigs of my life to suddenly this drama before getting out, I was in like a dressing room, and there was three ladies basically ironing me. They all had irons out, like, one, like ironing very sensitive parts as well. It was the most fucking... I don't know if I've said this on the podcast. Such an idiot. There's just such a me thing to do. Like, yeah, I was just like, this has gone really well. I literally thought, God, this is one of the most unadulteratedly good experiences I've had in stand-up. And in my brain, probably the same part of my brain that wants to stay in a traveller, just threw fucking drink all over myself. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and this is the thing. I had the same thing. I was like, I'm feeling good. I feel like I've done all the gigs to lead up to this moment. Michelle, you deserve to be here. And then I thought, oh, I don't know about this outfit. And then got the front of my shirt and it looked like I tucked it into my knickers. Like that is how mental <laughs> I look. Like I'm like, what in, what would you, like I, after I met up with my two mates um, uh, um, who were like super good with fashion, married couple, whatever. And they couldn't, they didn't look down from my neck. And I thought, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I could just see, they, they didn't say anything. They were just like, your makeup looks great. And I said, thank you. And yeah. I knew what that meant. You're fucked. I, I, look, I, wanted, I wanted obviously to talk to you about your, your BBC show as well, but that's not coming out on your sitcom until next year. Yeah. Is that right? So June next yeah. year. So I'd love you to come back and we can um, pick I up the conversation. I would absolutely, sorry to keep on talking over you, I would absolutely love to. And um, yeah, Jeff, I'm a big fan, man. So thanks for asking me to come on. Well, listen, everybody should go to Michelle's social and all of her stuff. And if you can ever see her live, do make sure that you do. Michelle DeSwart, thanks so much for being on What Most People Think. You're so welcome, Jeff. That was the chat with Michelle. I mean, just, I laughed so much. And then after, I mean, this is no good to you, but then after, normally what happens is I finish the podcast with most, and it is mostly blokes that come on this podcast. We sort of say, all right, cheers, bye. And then just, just like men's inability to communicate without a sort of direct function. Because talking for its own sake doesn't feel okay. But we carried on chatting for a good 20 minutes. Just a hilariously funny person. Uh, and, you know, impossible, impossible to pigeonhole as a comic. Um, so do give Michelle a follow. Do go. I know that she's on TikTok now and a lot of her clips are doing well there. Do go and look at some of Michelle's stuff. All right, we've got one letter before we are out. Okay, one letter here. This is from Ian. Ian says, Ian. Where, why am I saying it like that? Oh, it's from, it was from that bit in my big fat Greek wedding, wasn't it? When she they meet her new fella and everyone goes, Ian. You should do that. If you know anybody called Ian, just, just really get as much out of that three-letter name as you can. Hi, Jeff. I'm off on a mate's stag do next weekend. He's called Alex, but I always call him Craig, as he looks like Craig Bellamy. Brilliant. Classic nickname in there. Irrational. It's just a really, it's just a really tenuous reason to change someone's name, but you did it. 
because he looks like Craig Bellamy. Does he? I mean, does he act like Craig Bellamy when he's drunk? Because I wouldn't fucking take him. Uh, the stag destination is Porto. Hey, it's a fucking great city. Uh, heard you've been recently, perhaps not on the mega lash, but still thought you might have some hints and tips. Best beer for chugging, coffee and sweet trick. Coffee? What the, what the, why would you think that I would be involved with coffee while I'm out there? Um, well, you've got to be drinking the Bock. That's their lager there. It's about 5.1% and it's it's quite sweet, but my God. Something that sweet and 5.1% is, is very... Very dangerous. Um, you ask for a sweet treat for those hang- hangovers. I wouldn't recommend a sweet treat in Porto. I'd go for the thing called, I think it's called the Frangelica, Frangipani or something. <laughs> Panna cotta. I can't get my words right to do with food. It's called, the anyway, basically it's like hot dogs, ham, bread and cheese. It's the most wrongest fucking like heart disease in a sandwich you'll ever eat. But my God. I mean, I would say get drink. Wake up the following morning, be hungover, go get one of those and then schedule in going back to bed. And I'm talking like properly back to bed, uh, maybe for an hour and a half. Um, listen, that is it for this week's episode of What Most People Think. Thank you as ever for listening. Look, I don't have one of those deals where other people say, you know, when you listen to a podcast now, I know we've always had the adverts, but you'll also have just somebody butt in and go, my name's Steve and I am into gin. So I started a new podcast called The Gin Podcast. That's right. Get it from your usual podcast provider and we can be exploring the world of gin and all of their intonation goes up, down and all over the place. So do join me on The Gin Podcast. Yeah, I haven't had any benefit of that. So new listeners will only come from recommendations. If you could do me that, I'd be much obliged. And I'm doing the intonation thing now. So you have a great weekend. (laughs)